But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our good, and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and our boasting about you to these men. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father, uh, we ask for your grace. Um, We ask that you would come and fill us with your spirit. Allow us to hear your word and allow that hearing of your word to produce faith, uh, worship, thanksgiving, um, love for one another. We're thankful for being able to gather. And uh, Lord, I ask especially that any words that come out of my mouth that do not align with your word uh, would not be remembered, would have no impact on hearts, and would just fall to the wayside. But anything that lines up with your word, Lord, that you would put it into our hearts, cause us to walk out according to it, to be doers and not just hearers. Father, I pray that especially in this uh, time that you would turn this service into one of thanks to you. Allow this to be worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. So I'm going to start with a joke. Yeah. Uh, there was a, there's a man and there was a flood and he's standing on top of his roof and he's praying to God, God, have grace, have mercy on me, save me from the flood. And a couple of guys are teenagers, they're canoeing by, you know, they got a canoe and they stop and they're like, Hey, do you want to ride? We have this middle spot. And he's like, no, 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 God, God will save me. Y'all, y'all continue on. So they canoed on and he prayed to God again, Lord, have grace, have mercy, save me. And, you know, the, the water's coming up now. It's about to his ankles. And a couple guys on a motor boat pass by. They stop again. Do you want to ride? He's like, no, no, no. God will save me. Right? So they move on. Kind of, They're looking at him a little weird. Now the water's kind of up to his neck. And it's almost kind of his last opportunity. He prays again, God save me. Have grace and mercy on me. And a helicopter out of nowhere comes over. And uh, the pilot screams down, do you need a ride? And the guy screams back up to her loud as loud as he can. No, no, I'm fine. God's going to save me. She looks at him a little strangely, and then she moves on to see if she can find any other survivors of the flood. And then the end of the story is he dies from the flood. And then in asking God one question after his death, he decides that, God, why didn't you have grace? Why didn't you have mercy? Why didn't you save me? And then God looks at the man and says, well, I sent a canoe, a motorboat, and a helicopter. 
what else could I have done, right? Um, now, it's, a, it's kind of a, a joke, but at the same time, we do look at the Lord's grace oftentimes like that. We kind of have this, or at least for me, I kind of have this way of seeing God's grace as this kind of abstract thing. Like he's going to do this thing apart from people, which he does, right? There's miracles. There's supernatural healings. Salvation itself is, is a, a supernatural work in the heart of man where God has to speak light. But at the same time, accomplish his, also uses ordinary means, ordinary people to accomplish his ordinary grace or his supernatural grace. And so in this case, this man is looking for something supernatural, but who's to say that God didn't put in the heart of the canoers and the motorboat person and the helicopter pilot that they're to go save this person, that they were actually responding to God's grace and extending it to this man. So to find this balance, it's rare to find a combination of a good understanding of what the Bible teaches about sovereignty and grace partnered with what the Bible teaches about human responsibility and what we owe to God, our works. How does our works and our words, uh, how do they relate to God's grace and his sovereignty, his rule? So there's a couple of quotes that of throughout church history and then even in the Bible that kind of draw this out, this balance. So the first one I want to read is from Augustine, um, ancient church father. He wrote this in his autobiographical uh, book called Confessions. He says this, talking to God. On your exceedingly great mercy rests all my hope. Give what you command and command whatever you want. And so this idea of like, God, command whatever you want, but I need you to also give to me what you command. All right? You're, you're going to call me to love my neighbor. Well, I need you to put love into my heart so that I might love my neighbor. Uh, a little bit later, 20th century, a lot later, Lorraine... Uh, Butner said, uh, said it this way in um, his work, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination. This is 1930s. He said, If God has ordained a man to be saved, he has ordained that he shall hear the gospel. He shall believe and repent. If we engage in the Lord's service, meaning proclaiming the gospel, calling people to believe and repent. If we engage in the Lord's service and make diligent use of the means which he has prescribed, we have the great encouragement of knowing that it is by these very means that God has determined to accomplish his work. Meaning, God can only save a person, but he tells us to proclaim the gospel to a person. They must hear in order to believe. God does the work, but he uses the ordinary means of us sharing the gospel with someone. Both of those things are the grace of God at work. Uh, a more modern thing, uh, more modern day, this is Timothy Keller's The New City Catechism. Um, he says it this way in two different questions. Question number 29 says, how can we be saved? And he answers, only by faith in Jesus Christ. And then you might say, well, where does this faith come from? Well, he, he asks that. And question number 35, he says, since we are redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, where does this faith come from? And the answer, all gifts, all the gifts we receive from Christ we receive through the Holy Spirit, including faith itself. So how does human responsibility and grace of God relate? That's what we're, we're going to see kind of here. Now, you might be like, okay, that was a really cool little historical survey of those two things throughout the church. What does it have to do with Second Corkley is all about giving money, monetary giving for the, the church of Jerusalem. Uh, so uh, 
In fact, Paul Barnett, commentator Paul Barnett, just summarizes these two chapters as the call to complete the Jerusalem collection. So what does that have to do with grace? And what does that have to do with human responsibility? That's our question. Well, I'm glad you asked. The the doctrine of grace is sprinkled throughout the entirety of chapter 8 through chapter 9, verse 15. So let me just, I'm going to give you some of the verses. The word grace is particularly used in chapter 8, verse 1, verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 16, verse 19, chapter 9, verse 8, chapter 9, verse 14, and chapter 9, verse 15. It's used 10 times throughout the collection of these two, uh, these three sections that are on the Jerusalem uh, collection. In fact, Paul is actually going to kick off the the section in chapter 8, verse 1. He says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. So the whole section kicks off. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. What did this grace look like? What does it look like in in terms of how does Paul then go on to describe it? The Macedonian churches longed to take part in the collection of their own free will, and they gave abundantly out of poverty, and then Paul turned, um, they gave abundantly out of poverty. That's what grace looked like for the Macedonian churches. Uh, We saw last week in chapter 8, verse 9, where uh, Paul, to motivate the Corinthians, he puts Jesus as the very gospel of grace in chapter 8, verse 9. He says this, um, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And this was powerfully unpacked last week's sermon. There's a little five-minute clip. If you go look up what um, Pastor Fudd said about verse 9, he just unpacks the gospel of grace. And so that stuck to motivate the Corinthians here to um, to collect for the Jerusalem church. What about our passage? Uh, Look at chapter 8, verse 16, how it starts. It says this, um, But thanks be to God. Now you might be like, well, there's no grace there. Where's grace? The word thanks in Greek is the Greek word charis or charis, depending on how you pronounce it. Um, And it means literally grace. And there's there's a powerful thing, even right there, that when, when, um, well, I'll say it this way. While they long, uh, well, I'll say it this way. Paul is saying, thanks be to God, but the word grace is being used. So think about what that looks like. It looks like thanks is being said, but what is in reality happening is Paul is receiving God's grace. So when we give thanks, it's actually more of an evidence that that's just how we express the grace of God upon our own hearts. And that's how the passage starts. Thanks be to God. Um, The phrase is used again in the very last verse of these three sections, verse 15. I'll I'll start at verse 14. This is chapter 9. While they long for you and pray for you, talking about Jerusalem now for the Corinthians, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And that's how the whole section of the Jerusalem collection ends. So it starts with grace has the gospel of grace put right in the middle of it. It talks about then giving thanks because of grace and motivating because of that grace. And then it ends once again with thanks. So today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about grace. We're going to look at how does grace manifest itself in the church and in Christians' particular lives? What does it look like? How can you, when you look at your brother or your sister, or when you look at your own life, how how can you tell, is grace upon them? Are they expressing God's grace right now? 
Um, now, why are we doing that? Because worship is at stake, right? If we see the grace of God, we can give thanks for the work of God. If we don't see the grace of God, we can go back to God and appeal to him for grace and beg to him for grace. So I'm going to go ahead and throw this word out there. I've been made fun of it already. We will look at the lordly grace of God. People have asked me, what does lordly mean? Is that a real word? Yes. All right, why am I using it? Lordly grace is used for several reasons. First, our confession of Christianity itself is Jesus is Lord. Okay? So Jesus is Lord. That means his grace is lordly. Second, God is sovereign. He's he has, he's over every happening in heaven and on earth. As the psalm says, he literally does whatever he pleases. God is lordly. Finally, we're calling God's grace a lordly grace because of what uh, Calvin, John Calvin, observed about the gifts of God in Scripture. He says this, I quote, Scripture derives some principle of conduct from every gift of God described to us in it and from every aspect of our salvation. So grace comes with it, a conduct. All right, that's what he's trying to say. And so I'll, I'll give some examples of that. God reveals himself as a father. Well, what's the, that's the grace there. What's the conduct that's uh, stuck in that kernel of truth? Well, we are to appeal to him as sons and daughters. We are his children. Uh, God cleanses us from our sins. Well, what's the conduct thing there? Therefore, we shouldn't go off and, and uh, participate in the filthiness of sin, Right? Uh, the third thing, Jesus is in the heavenly places, seated at the right hand. Therefore, our minds should be set upon where he is. We should be thinking about Christ Jesus, and we should be longing in our hearts for to be where he actually is. And so the grace of God carries with it the commands and the ability to obey those commands. So we're going to look at this. Point number one is this. God's lordly grace brings about thanksgiving to the glory of God. And so what I'm going to do is we're going to run through each of these verses and we're going to look at themes, four themes, and then the fifth thing will be kind of our uh, application point. We're going to look at themes that go throughout each verse. And so we'll kind of go through the passage and then we'll go to the second theme and we'll go back through the passage and then we'll go to the third theme and we're going to go back through the passage. So there's going to be some, some jumping back and forth, going over verses several times and looking at it at different angles. Could be a little confusing, but I think we'll... We're going to follow it. I did this, uh, practiced this on my wife, and she understood everything, so I'm confident. Um, all right, so our first phrase, thanks be to God. And this comes from chapter 8, verse 16. So this is, uh, God's lordly grace brings about thanksgiving to the glory of God. The first phrase we're going to look at is thanks be to God in verse 16. So again, I kind of covered this, but there's a great truth. The fact that Paul uses the word grace here. Um, it, it, it's demonstrating that when grace is on Paul's heart, what that looks like to us, if we're looking at Paul, what it looks like is thanks being given to God himself. So the grace of God reveals itself as thanks. So how do we know Paul has reversed God's grace in this instance? Uh, commentator Mark Seifert says it this way. The return of thanksgiving is finally no return gift to God. Even as the response and return of thanks, it is merely the reception of God's gifts. So when people are thankful, it's merely the reception of God's gifts. It's the sign that God's gift is upon them. God's grace is upon them. So Paul giving thanks is the grace of God 
mightily at work of Paul. God gives and man gives thanks. God gives grace, man gives thanks. These are the two descriptions of the same act of grace, the two sides of the one coin. God's grace received by Paul turns into Paul's thanks for God's grace. And both of these actions, in summary, are God's grace. Both of these actions. So here's the the heart check question that we can ask ourselves. Do I find myself often giving thanks to God for his great gifts? Do I find myself often giving thanks to God? If yes, give thanks even now. Because that means God's grace is mightily at work. We shouldn't overlook the fact that when we have thankfulness in our heart for what the Lord has done, don't overlook that. That is a supernatural working of God's grace upon your life. That's not something that you can just conjure up in your own strength. And so, if yes, give thanks even now for God's grace is here. If we find ourselves lacking a kind of thanksgiving, well, return again to the God who can change that. Return if you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Return again to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Dwell again upon the good news, the proclamation of Jesus' death and resurrection because that's where grace comes from. That's where thanksgiving is produced. Um, So our second phrase that I want to look to continue this theme of God's lordly grace is about thanksgiving and glory, uh, the glory of God. The second phrase comes from verses uh, 19 and 21. In verse 19, the phrase glory of the Lord is used. In verse 21, in the Lord's sight is used. So not only does grace reveal itself as thanksgiving given to God, but it also leads to God's glory. The second half of verse 19 says it this way. As we carry out this act of grace, talking about the Jerusalem collection, as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. So again, the act of grace is um, the Jerusalem collection. In the Greek, it's literally, it doesn't even say act, it just says this grace. It calls the Jerusalem collection the grace of God, right? Once again, demonstrating that the works that people are doing is actually a communication of God's grace on people's life. So not only will this act of grace help the Jerusalem Christians, for Paul, it's a matter of God's glory. It says it will lead. It's for the glory of the Lord. So Paul, knowing that this is God working in their very midst, he writes this in verse 21, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Because this is God's grace, Paul wants everything to be done above board. He doesn't want to be seen as abusing God's grace. He wants it to be done as if it's being done literally in the Lord's sight. It would be silly to abuse the grace of God in the sight of God. It would also be silly to abuse the grace of God in the sight of man. Now, he's quoting here Proverbs 3, 4. And I'm going to read uh, Proverbs 3, 3 through 4 so you can get a little bit of the context of the proverb. It says this, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, you will find favor, literally in Greek for the Septuagint version, which he's quoting from, you will find grace 
So you will find grace and good success in the sight of God and of man. So Paul understands that this collection is steeped in God's grace to man. And this leads Paul to take the collection all the more seriously, which is why this whole passage, what he's doing is he's sending Titus and he's commending them to the Corinthians and he's sending two other people from the Macedonian churches to go and participate in the collection. So there's accountability, right? So there's accountability in the sight of man, but it's also just demonstrating the unity in the working of grace in the sight of God. And so he quotes the proverb here. So he follows proverbial wisdom by keeping love and faithfulness bound around his neck and uh, written on the tablet of his heart. And in doing this, he knows that he's not only responding to the grace of God, but he's actually finding the grace of God in the sight of God and in the sight of man. So again, grace is just every, every little thing um, is about grace. I mean, if, I guess for an analogy, it's grace is literally like a rub that you're putting all over the steak. You're seasoning it. You're cooking it. You bite any piece of the steak, it's affected by grace. You bite any piece of this um, text, and grace is at its kind of core. All right, so our second point here. So the first one is it, it's for the glory of God. It produces thanksgivings for the glory of God. Second point, God's lordly grace works through the free will of our hearts. God's lordly grace works through the free will of our hearts. So we, uh, we kind of looked through a few of the verses to show that thanksgiving and the glory of the Lord was at the heart of what grace leads to. But now we're going to look at it again and we're going to see how does grace relate to our will? How does grace relate, relate to our choices? How does grace relate? What, what responsibility do we hold in this idea of grace? The Bible presents us with no dilemma between understanding God as being sovereign over everything in heaven and on earth and mankind being responsible for the choices they make by the way of their wills. Puts no thing. So the first phrase we're going to do here, we're going to return to verse 16. Thanks be to God who put, and this is point A, sorry, 2A, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care of his own accord. So this is verses 16 through 17. Who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care, and then at the end, of his own accord. So verse 16, thanks be to God. Why is Paul declaring thanks to God? Well, we already saw grace is on his heart, but there's another reason. He's seeing the grace of God in another person's heart. So why is Paul giving thanks? Verse 16 says that, uh, thanks be to God, who, talking about God, put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, He is going to you of his own accord. God put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care for the Corinthians that Paul himself had. And that's why Paul says, thanks be to God. This word put is literally the verb give. And so it's related to the word grace. God literally gave into his heart the same earnest care that Paul himself had uh, for the Corinthians. So God is literally putting an earnest care for the Corinthian church into the heart of Titus. And then Paul continues verse 17 by showing, well, how can we tell? How do we know that God has done something in the heart of Titus? Verse 17 explains, for he not only accepted our appeal. So Paul's appealing to him, go to the Corinthians. I need you to help out with this, right? Titus actually earlier on is stated to be the one who started the the Jerusalem collection a year ago. 
in the Corinth church. So Paul's literally appealing to him to go finish it. So not only did he accept the appeal of Paul, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord. So how do we know that God gave him earnestness for the Corinthians? He accepted Paul's appeal. And the second thing is, he didn't go because Paul appealed to him. He went of his own accord. Uh, the Greek word for own accord can be translated like the, it's literally the word where we get our word authority from. So it's like he went of his own authority, but it means literally vo- he went voluntarily. He went by free choice. There was nothing compelling him to go other than his own heart. So that's what's going on here. So, so let's rewind and look at kind of the because of earnestness goes of his own free choice to the Corinthians. God's, uh, God's grace, man's responsibility. So that's what the text says. 2 Corinthians 8, 16-17 is essentially Paul's Philippians 2, 12-13, which I read at the beginning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, which sounds like it's all our responsibility to work out our salvation. But then it goes on to say, for it is God who works in you both the will and Uh, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, work out your own salvation. But know this, if you are working out your own salvation, it's God working in you both to will and to work for his own good pleasure. It's God's grace. It's not your work, so to speak. All right, the second phrase where we're going to see, again, um, we're going to see this lordly grace uh, that... um, this lordly grace that works through the free will of our hearts. The second phrase comes from verse 21. And it's, for we aim at what is honorable um, in the sight of God and also in the sight. Though Paul understands that God put the desires for the Corinthian church into the heart of Titus, though Paul understands that God is Lord of every heart of mankind, Paul is still concerned about the appearance of things in the sight of men. As Proverbs 3 makes clear, which he quoted, right? God's lordly grace is not understood properly when it leads us to live life merely in the sight of God and not in the sight of men. No accountability is what I mean there. I don't mean people-pleasing. There's a big difference between, like, people-pleasing and then living in the sight of men in the sense of accountability, all right? So when people look at this, are they looking at the Jerusalem collection and saying, there's some shady stuff going over there. I saw Paul take money. I saw Paul put money in his, uh, his pockets. And I saw Paul walk to the Jerusalem church. And for whatever reason, there's not, enough, there's not the same amount of money that started that got to Jerusalem church, right? And then there's no accountability there. Um, so that's what, Paul is, that's what I mean by in the sight of uh, men. So for Paul, it is necessary to keep a high amount of accountability in regards to the collection. Uh, why? Because the collection itself is seen as grace. If this is God's grace working, and then we choose to not hold ourselves accountable to it, and we put a kind of shadiness to it, then men who look upon the grace of God will see the shadiness of men, and they won't see the grace of God. And thus, they won't have a chance to do like Paul. Thanks be to God. All right? And so, God's word in Proverbs calls for this kind of accountability. We see the same dichotomy a little bit earlier in uh, chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. Uh, He says this, uh, begging us earnestly. So this is talking about the Macedonian churches. They were begging us, Paul, begging us earnestly for the favor or grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so there's a dynamic where they gave themselves before the Lord, and then there's another dynamic where they gave themselves before Paul. Men. The Macedonian church responded to Paul's appeal for the collection, much like Titus. The word earnestly is used again. The same word describing Titus is used of the Macedonian church. In response to Paul's call, it says this, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by to the will of God. And then verse 3 says this, they gave beyond their means of their own accord. Again, using the same language as Titus. So the Macedonian churches had earnestness in their giving and they gave of their own accord. And just like Titus, we can surmise that it's because God put it in their heart. The grace of God was mightily working in the Macedonian churches. So God's lordly grace works through the free will of our hearts. When we find ourselves obeying the Lord's commands of our own voluntary free choice, this should again give us great reason to give thanks to God because that's God's grace. Don't think, don't think to yourself that when, when I find myself obeying or even desiring to obey, that that's a desire that I myself have just kind of pulled up my bootstraps and created in my own heart. That's God being gracious and merciful uh, upon us. So obedience worked out in our hearts is of God's grace and not of ourselves. And thus God deserves to worship. So let's look at our third kind of point. We're going to go back through the text again and look at some of these uh, grace themes. Our third point is this. God's lordly grace is carried out by healthy churches. So we've seen grace's end. It leads to thanksgiving to the glory of God. We've seen grace as it plays out in our everyday choices, our wills. Uh, It looks like earnestness for the people of God. It looks like accountability before the sight of men. It looks like um, uh, the going of our own free wills, giving out of our poverty of our own accord. Those are all different examples of the grace of God uh, manifesting itself through our choices. Now we're going to look through um, how God uses the healthy local churches to carry out grace, his lordly grace. So our first phrase is going to be found in verses 18 through 19. Appointed by the churches. Appointed by the churches. Our text indicates that the local church plays a big role in carrying out God's grace. This act of grace is not carried out merely by the apostolic teaching or ordering or commissioning of Paul, but rather it's also carried out by various healthy local churches. Paul describes the role of the churches in verses 18 through 19, which say this, With him, we are sending the brother. So he sent Titus. Now he's sending the brother. We don't know who it is. We can speculate, but we don't know. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. So Paul's not only sending Titus, he's sending this other guy, this brother. Um, And this brother is, the only description given of him here is he's famous among the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Literally, it just reads, he's famous for being in the gospel. Now, the reason why the ESV translates it as preaching of the gospel is elsewhere in Paul's letters, he uses the same phrase to mean preaching of the gospel. Um, Romans 1.9, 1 Corinthians 9.18 
2 Corinthians 10, 14 and 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 use the same phrase to kind of indicate a person who is proclaiming uh, the gospel of Jesus. So Paul Barnett, commentator Paul Barnett, makes a good passing comment before we kind of look at this more in depth. He says this about verse 18. Although the purpose of this visit, so think about it, Titus and these brothers, the purpose of the visit is to carry out a collection to Jerusalem. It's, an, it's a financial administrative thing, right? So although the purpose of this visit was financial and administrative, Paul sends a man who is noted in the churches, and we could add the churches send a man also, it, that is noted in the churches in regard to the gospel. Paul can think of no higher commendation he didn't just merely send like the financial advisor guy over like someone who's good at finances i'm sure he was they're probably competent in finances but he sent someone over who was famous among the churches the macedonian churches for his in regard to the gospel of jesus christ that was the highest commendation he could think of the highest amount of integrity that he could think of to send um, this brother along with them now verse 19 makes it clear Paul's not the only one sending this brother. It says, He has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. Uh, appointed here, literally, it has the, the connotation of Wendy's today, and then, you know, raise your hand if you want to go to Wendy's. It has that kind of connotation here. So it's not necessarily that the text is saying, particularly, the church got together and they all raised their hands if they wanted them to go. It doesn't tell us if it was like the church members. Or just the elders got together and they raised their hands. Or if all three of them got together and they raised their hands. But the point is, is the idea is it was the the majority of the people thought it good that this brother would be sent out on their behalf. Right? Whether they raised hands or not, they appointed this person. um, And they sent him to represent the Macedonian churches to the Corinthians. They were appointed to travel with Titus to Corinth. And it wasn't just to go to Corinth. It was to go to Corinth, finish the collection... And then to go all the way with Paul to Jerusalem and give the collection. So these, these guys were being sent out for a long time um, as well. All right, so we see that God's grace looks like, how's it carried out by the church? Well, men are appointed or, and sent out um, to carry it out. We're going to see it again in verse 23, which uh, the phrase this, messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Uh, when Paul refers to, in verse 23, he says this, uh, he's summarizing all these brothers up. He says, as for Titus, he's my partner. He's my churches, the glory of Christ. So Titus's resume is found in this, this phrase. He's my partner. He's my fellow worker for your benefit. But we also, you know, we see his resume in verse 16, the earnestness that was put into his heart, the going of his own volition to the Corinthians. So that, that's Titus's resume. But Paul's going to continue to discuss these other two brothers, uh, one we already talked about, we'll talk about the other one in a second. What's their resume? As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. The word apostle is used here. They are apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. Now, just a little side note for apostle. Uh, there's two kinds of understandings of apostle throughout the Bible, the New Testament in particular. There's apostle we could call it capital A apostle. These are like the disciples who actually lived, walked with Jesus and saw his resurrection. Paul is included in on that list because he t- talks about how the Lord revealed himself after his resurrection to one untimely born. Uh, so there's that capital A apostle. The, the teaching that they gave was what the church itself devoted themselves to in Acts uh, chapter 4. Uh, so there's capital A apostle. And then there's 
lowercase a apostle, which is just what the, the word itself means. Apostle just means sent out, sent out one. And so here what it's saying is these were men who were appointed by the church and sent out. Uh, it's more akin to even the idea of like missionary, which is, again, from the Latin to send out. Um, so it's, it's, it's sent out ones. These were brothers sent out by the church to help strengthen uh, the church of uh, both Corinth and Jerusalem. So note the next phrase, the glory of Christ. So they're the apostles of the church, and then it says the glory of Christ. Who does this phrase apply to? There's one view that says it's Titus and the two brothers, like, and the phrase just kind of summarizes all of them, the glory of Christ. Uh, another kind of view is it just applies particularly to the two brothers that were sent out. And then another view is it applies to the churches that sent out the two uh, brothers. The, the symmetry of the passage points to the fact that it's the two brothers. But I think we should understand it as the two brothers in so as much that they represent the churches that sent them out. So let me, let me explain that. So they're sent out to represent the churches and stand in the place of the churches. Um, there's a couple of places that I'll go to, this idea of light. We, we could just stick in, we'll stick in 2 Corinthians. Second, when Satan is said to, he's blinded the unbelievers so that they can't see, in verse 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Verse 6, again, it says that God, like, basically spoke, let light shine out in their hearts. And it says this, what is this light? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. So light and glory are connected, right? So when, when he says the glory of the churches, we shouldn't necessarily separate that idea from putting forth Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God before other people. Uh, well, what connects that? Verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5 says this. Paul, in between those two verses that I just read, he says this, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so healthy churches and those sent out by healthy churches are the glory of Christ because they represent, they proclaim Christ himself to others. They give off the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ or God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, David Garland says it this way, calling them the glory of Christ implies that Christ is made known through these delegates. And that's really, if you, if you wanted to summarize what is at the foundation of a local church? It's that Christ may be made known by the local church to each other and to those around. They are a light. Uh, Philippians, um, Philippians 2.15 literally says of church members, he calls them lights in the world. Uh, chapter Revelation calls the churches stars and lampstands, giving off the light of the glory of God. And so it's this idea of connecting light with glory. So when he says these messengers from the churches are the glory of Christ, that's, what, that's the connotation here. These churches are participating in the grace of God. Therefore, they're giving off the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right. Fourth and last theme. God's lordly grace sends people to accomplish God's will. So we saw healthy churches carry out God's grace. Now we're going to see, well, how does that look? It's ascending grace. It's ascending grace to accomplish his will. So two phrases, both of them are very similar. The first one, so this is 4a, with him, we are sending the brother. Going back to verses 17 
through 19. Actually, I'll just read 16 through 19. So in 16, he gives the earnest care to Titus, and the verse 17 picks up. This earnest care leads him to going to you of his own accord, right? So God's grace led Titus to going somewhere. In verse 18, it says that Paul is sending this brother who's famous among all the churches for preaching. So there's a sending. That same brother is not only sent out by Paul, but he's appointed by the churches to travel with Paul. So you see going, sending, appointed, traveling. All of those are kind of this idea of I'm in one location, I'm moving to another location. And what are they doing? They're sending him so that he can carry out this act of grace. So God uses local churches to send people to carry out this act of grace. In this case, it's the Jerusalem collection. The second phrase found in verse 22 through 23 is very similar. With him, we are sending our brother. So there's Titus, the brother, and our brother. Those are three different people. And that's the only distinguishing factors uh, between them. So with him, we are sending our brother, verses 22 through 23. He continues stating that he is sending another brother with Titus and this other guy. And he says this, I quote, And with them, the two brothers, Titus and the brother, with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So this brother seems to also have been sent not only by Paul, but the churches, because remember, in 23, he's called uh, the messenger of the church. He's linked with the other brother. They're the messengers of the churches. So not only did Paul send this guy, but it's likely he, like the first guy, was appointed and sent out by the churches. So this echoes, um, well, let me keep going with this. 23, as for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches. So this second brother was said to have often been tested and often been found earnest. In many matters. And then Paul's vouching for his character. And then on, he goes on to say, this brother in verse 23 is now, sorry, 22, is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. This echoes again the description of Corinthians. So like Titus, this brother is also earnest. Like Titus, he's sent by Paul to the Corinthians. Like Titus, he seems to be going of his own accord with great earnestness, a growing earnestness for the Corinthians. Is it possible then to conclude that, like Titus, this is God's grace put into the heart of this brother? The same grace that enables Paul to proclaim, thanks be to God, is the same grace that put earnest care in the heart of Titus. And it's the same grace that causes this brother to increase in his earnestness due to his great confidence in the Corinthian church. So God's lordly grace here sends people to accomplish his will. And it's so... so, Here's a good connection. It's no wonder when we talk about the mission of the church, Matthew 28, that the first participle that describes making disciples is go, right? God's grace is a sending grace. It's a grace that calls us to go and to make disciples. And that's what they're doing here, even in the uh, Jerusalem collection. So our final thing is point number five, and this is more uh, the application part of this. Submission to God's lordly grace demonstrates our love. Found in chapter 8, 24, and then also the end of the, the Jer- Jerusalem collection passage in chapter 9, 13 through 15. Verse 24 says this. Paul turns to the Corinthians after all this talk about these brothers he's sending. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. 
The phrase give proof is functioning something like a command, but it's not a command. Um, It's not in the imperative mood, so to speak. So give proof. uh, Demonstrate, right? That's the idea. Demonstrate before the churches, the Macedonian churches, your love and of Paul's boasting. So though it's functioning like a command, we already know, again, free will is kind of in the heart. He doesn't want people going by compulsion. He wants them going of their own accord. Uh, An example of this, chapter 8, verse 8, literally saying to the Corinthians, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. Paul's careful to protect the will of the people from compulsion. He wants them to do it by their own accord. All right, so he's, he's carefully protecting that. That's why he doesn't issue a command here, so to speak. But he is giving kind of strong language. He doesn't want them to give simply because they're commanded, but rather because the grace of God is on their heart. And that's their obedience to God. So he wants obedience, but he wants obedience from the heart. So the arrival of Titus and the brothers, the apostles of the churches, gives the Corinthians two opportunities. First, to prove their love before the churches, because these men were sent from the churches. They literally represent the churches. In the Greek, it's in the sight of or in the face of the churches. The churches aren't literally there, but these two men representing them are. And so when we do it before representatives, we are doing it before their face, the face of the churches. And then the second thing is he wants them to prove that that Paul's boasts have been good about them. Paul's been boasting about the work of God's grace in the Corinthian church. And when they prove to essentially love these brothers well, receive them well, and participate wholeheartedly of their own accord in this Jerusalem collection, they are affirming Paul's boasting of the Lord's work in uh, their lives. Um, Looking a little bit later, we can kind of dip into chapter 9 and see this as well. Uh, Paul goes on to describe what it would be like if the Corinthians do what he says. What will it be like if the Corinthians actually give uh, out of their own accord, out of their poverty, much like the Macedonian Corinthian church, this, this gathering. 13 says this about the Jerusalem church. If they receive from the Corinthian church this, this gathering, this money, they, the Jerusalem church is going to, I quote in 913, glorify God because of the Corinthians. Submission that comes from their confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of their contribution. The Jerusalem church will glorify God. In verse 14, it, it, it describes further, now what will the Jerusalem church's response? They'll glorify God because of the grace of God on the Corinthian church, but also they'll long for you, the Corinthian church, and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then finally, 9.15 ends where we began. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God's grace initiated by giving grace to Titus and sending other brothers along with Paul to the Corinthians to partner in this collection for the Jerusalem church. And if the Corinthians then continue that grace by receiving it and give like the Macedonian churches before them, the grace is now going to be extended to the Jerusalem church and it's going to give them a chance to long for the Corinthian church, pray for the Corinthian church, and give glory to God for this inexpressible gift. And so when we find ourselves obedient to God's grace, it extends out and it gives people around us an opportunity to also receive the grace of the Lord and be obedient to it. So perhaps, in kind of conclusion, perhaps we might learn to be careful to pay attention to the grace of God in the ordinary happenings 
of mankind. When we, or arts of others, an earnestness to do good unto the bride of Christ. Or, uh, you know, we find an earnestness to travel and proclaim the gospel to a group that doesn't have the gospel. Or we find a simple thanksgiving to God for something that he's done for us throughout this week. Perhaps we'll turn in thanks and recognize God's grace for what it really is. When we find thanksgiving welling up in our hearts, perhaps we'll recognize that as grace. Pure and simple, it's God's grace poured into our hearts. So may we all remember the fount of grace, the Lord himself. This is verse 9 in chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Believe upon the Lord Jesus. Receive his grace. Confess with your mouths today uh, in words and song, resounding, thanks be to God, Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, give us your grace. Allow us to see your grace in others and allow that to just bring us to a place of thanksgiving um, instead of criticism and critique. Allow us to um, build each other up, to edify the churches around in Rock Hill. Um, Allow us to send, to send people, to extend your grace to others whether that be through building up other local churches or proclaiming Jesus' name in places where it's not proclaimed. We ask and we turn to you again, the only God, the only place, the only fountain in which we can find grace and mercy. Have grace on us and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.